set out for the camp. Whenever the ark set out, Moses said, Rise up, Lord, may your enemies be scattered, may your foes flee before you. Whenever it came to rest, he said, Return, Lord, to the countless thousands of Israel. And from John chapter 6, verses 30 to 35. So they asked him, What sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Very truly, I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Amen. I love that part of our service where we just begin with listening to the word, and it just, for me, is really wonderful to be able to just hear uh, the different ones who've read. Thank you, Norma, for reading this morning, but just to hear them reading the word. And, uh, and uh, I think, you know, I've, I've said this before, but I'll say it again. The reading of the word is the most important thing we do. The teaching is good, too. Teaching is very valuable. Uh, but uh, even in Jesus' day, they would uh, stand for the reading of the word and sit for the commentary, realizing that the commentary uh, can be fallible, but, the, but God's word is always going to be right on. And uh, so the reading that we had today points us towards a couple things. One that uh, we, we hear about the reading that Norma read out of the book of Numbers, which is in the Old Testament, back in the day of Moses, it, it tells us that how did they get around? How did the Israelites find them way, once they escaped from Egypt and now they're on their way towards the land of Canaan, present-day Israel-Palestine area? When they're on their way, how did they find their way around? They didn't have GPS, and uh, so how did they get there? Well, they had the most uh, divine version of GPS, in fact, incredible. Uh, it says, we learn in, in Numbers chapter 9, that the cloud would lift and start to move, and then people would go, oh, there's, so there's a cloud resting over their campground, and that cloud, when the cloud would lift, they would all, uh, you know, take their tents and wrap them up, and the Ark of the Covenant, the priests would get it on poles, and they would lead out, and then everyone would follow, and they'd go wherever the cloud would go, and then the cloud would come to rest somewhere, they'd go, oh, well, this is our new campground, and then they'd set up around the uh, tabernacle being in the middle, they'd set up their camp around that uh, structure. So that's how they, they got around. So God was giving them guidance uh, in how to move. And then God was not just guiding, but he was also providing. And uh, some of that was talked about in the John chapter uh, passage that we read, that God was providing. Uh, so in the desert, what's there to eat? Not a lot, especially if you've got a million people. So how did they eat? Well, God provided bread from heaven, they called it. And it's given that name several times. But the first time it was named, they just called it, what is it? Or manna, that's the word That's the word that means, what's that, right? What is that stuff? We've never seen that stuff before. We don't know how it got here, but it keeps showing up every day. Hey, what if I keep a whole bunch of it in my cupboard? Will I have more than my neighbor? Nope, it'll go bad. You just got to keep getting it every day. I can imagine in the New Testament when Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, pray, uh, give us this day our daily bread, they immediately go back in their minds and think about manna. 
And they think, yeah, every day we needed to depend on God to provide for us. And we couldn't sort of store up his provision. We actually needed him every single day, which is a beautiful picture of how we are supposed to live in relationship with God, that we depend on him every day. We don't just depend on what he did 20 years ago or what he did in our parents' generation or our grandparents' generation, but that every day we live in real-time dependence on God. And God was teaching his people who'd been a nation of slaves, living in a country full of idols, how to uh, walk as his people. Remember, God had said to them, you will be my treasured possession, Israel, and I will be your God. Not just not just that God had already proven that he was God and that the gods of Egypt were nothing. They were just nothing compared to him. And so uh, that was already proven. And so it's sort of like we're following Moses who's following clearly the God, the one that all gods must bow to, that all powers must surrender to. But then he says this wonderful thing. He says, no, I'm not just the God, I'm your God. What an incredible thing to know that the one who has all power and all authority is on their side. And so God's providing for them, and God is guiding them, but it's just like uh, human beings to get confused about all this stuff. And we see in this passage about John, they say, uh, you know, basically, Jesus, what sign will you do? What, you know, what will you do? Moses, or he, but he's, they're referring to Moses, Moses gave them bread from heaven to eat, and Jesus corrects them. We know that they're, they're referring to Moses because of how Jesus responds. He says, it's not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. Now, people get easily confused about this. Who is the leader in my life? Who is the leader in my life? Or who should be the leader in my life? I mean, there's lots of leaders around us. I mean, this is the day before the election. We've been thinking about leaders a lot, right? So I'm not making any political commentary because it's just dangerous. But, I, but just saying, we've been thinking about who's leading us, who's leading us, or who will lead us, or who might lead us, or what combination might lead us. You know, we're thinking about all those kind of things. But ultimately, we have to recognize that God is the leader we're following. Here, they didn't get it. They said, hey, remember Moses? Because Moses is a great hero to the, uh, the Jewish people. When Jesus, in the time of Jesus, people are saying, oh, Moses. Oh, yeah, Moses. He was so awesome. The time of Moses. Moses was amazing. Moses gave us bread from heaven. Jesus said, no, no, Moses didn't give you bread from heaven. God gave you bread from heaven. Oh, yeah, I guess that's right. You know, the Israelites, they struggled with this concept. You know, at one point, they get to the Mount Sinai and, and basically... Uh, they're so scared of interacting with God. I mean, God has set up this nation to interact with him, but they're so scared of interacting with God that they say at one point to Moses, don't let God speak to us. Only you speak to us. You know what? We're a lot more comfortable with a leader with skin on that we can look to. And so we'll look to you, Moses, and we'll follow you, Moses, but we don't want any direct interaction with God. You might say, well, God had already set it up so they wouldn't have direct interaction. There was the Holy of Holies, there was the curtain six inches thick that they could, you know, we talked about that last week. But you know, there was also the tent of meeting. So you had the tabernacle, the Holy of Holies, that told you so much stuff about the current condition of their relationship with God, how they were separated from God because of their sin, but God still wanted to dwell amongst them and, and be their God and they'd be his people and have that relationship with them. But there's this other tent, the tent of meeting. 
And it says that anyone could go to that tent and inquire of the Lord. So God, in a way, had to, had to, had to have things set up in such a way that it reflected reality, that sin had separated mankind from God, and for God to dwell with them, there needed to be that recognized. But at the same time, he was inviting people, average, everyday, ordinary Israelites, to come to the tent of meeting and inquire of the Lord. So back then, he actually said this. It's funny because there's two things that work at the same time. There was a priest system, that, and what is a priest? A priest is a go-between between you and God. So I can't go straight to God. I go to a priest, and that priest will go to God on my behalf. So there was a priest system set up in Israel at that time. But God says something very unique about the Israelites. I'm going to make you a kingdom of priests. I'm going to make you a nation of priests. So there was a way in which they were separated from God, and there was sort of a, a barrier because of their sin. That needed to be there. But there also was a way that God's heart was on full display that he did. He wanted to have that direct interaction, and he, and he provided that. So, so it, was, it was sort of like access to God but limited. Limited because of sin, but you could see the heart of God on full display that he wanted people to have access with him. But people didn't necessarily want access to God because they were afraid of God. Again, a lot of the stories we've been going through is people discovering who God is and what God is like. And can I trust him? I mean, that's, if I say nothing more this morning, can I trust him is the most important. So we have these little tiny posters here, the little postage stamps. But every one of them just talks about that same question again and again. Can I trust God? Adam and Eve, can you trust God? Satan in the, in the, in the, in the garden tempted them by saying, hey, you know, I don't know if you can trust God. God's holding out on you. Why won't he give you access to evil? Evil must be really important. Why don't you want to have knowledge about evil? And so eventually they made the decision not to trust God. So they answered the question with, can I trust God? No. And then they, and we, experienced the full negative results of rejecting God's way for our lives. In the second poster, Abraham had the same question. Abraham, do you trust me? Well, yes, lead me to this promised land you promised. Make us into a great nation. But then, hey, I'm not having a kid. Me and my wife, we're not having a kid, and we're old. I'm going to have a kid through my own method with another woman. That wasn't God's plan. So it's like, I trust God, but then, Abraham, I don't trust God. And then I trust God, and then I don't trust God. And then it comes to the pinnacle of the story where he offers back to God his own son, Isaac. And God's like, yeah, you get it now. And he's like, oh, I do trust God. And of course, uh, Abraham is commended throughout the Bible for the fact he came to trust God. But he was like you and me. I trust God. No, I don't trust God. I'm, I'm, I'm struggling to trust God. Joseph, he was a pretty great example of trusting God. God had spoke some really incredible visions and dreams over his life. And so when he was in slavery and thrown into slavery by his brothers, he trusted God in slavery. In fact, when he was tempted to sin with Potiphar's wife, he actually said, no, this is a sin against God. It's like, hey, you're a slave boy in a foreign land where nobody's talking about Jehovah. But you're still thinking about God. And then in the prison, when he was falsely accused by Potiphar's wife, thrown into prison, is, can you serve God in prison? Do you still trust God, Joseph, in prison? Yes, he still trusted God. And then when he's called out of prison to speak to Pharaoh and to interpret his dreams, he made it very clear that I'm not the one interpreting your dreams. It's God who gives the ability to ter- interpret dreams. So again, still trusting God and trusting God through the whole story. How about Moses? 
Did he trust God? Initially, I don't think so. Sort of, but I'm slow of speech. God, you can't use me. Who am I to deliver the Israelites? It was all about his doubts, his doubts, his obstacles, his, his difficulties. And then God just sort of broke through all that with like, I am who I say I am. This is who you should say sent you. The one, the only, <laughs> I am. The one and true God, right? And so he, most of Moses' story is initial distrust or initial fear or insecurity, but then he goes on to walk very faithfully with God, trusting him, trusting him, trusting him, trusting him. How about the Israelites? They were like, to me, the opposite of Moses. Every time God would say, hey, these are what I want you to do. This is how our relationship's going to be together, how I want you to live in relationship to me. They would all say, yeah, we're going to do that. We're totally going to do that. Anyone read the story? Do they really do that? No, they never do it. They don't do that. They, they say, we're going to obey. We're going to follow. We're gonna... And you know what? It only takes some mere, mere days. It took them 40 days of silence where Moses goes up on Mount Sinai and he's getting the law from God. And they're like, where'd Moses go? Oh, he's gone. Huh. And just, well, what are we going to do? I don't know. How about let's worship idols again? And they do. They worship a calf. It took them less than 40 days to forget Moses and to forget that they had promised that they were going to serve God. And now they're worshiping an idol and Aaron's, uh, you know, enabling that process. And they're saying, this golden calf led us out of Egypt. 40 days. So no, they didn't trust God. So this is, you can look down all these posters and, you, and, and as they go, probably as they continue to go, you can, you can ask that same question over everyone. Did they trust God? Did they trust God? Did they trust God? And then you say, do I trust God? Am I trusting God? What does it look like to truly trust God? So God wants to be our guide and our provider, right? Just like he was for the Israelites. And he wants to lead us and he wants to provide for us. Now, Numbers 20 tells us the story that's on the final poster. I'm going to just read it to you. It says, there's no water for the community and the people gathered in opposition to Moses and Aaron. This happened frequently. Um, in fact, this whole, when I read the whole passage that, you, that you'll probably read or you might have already read, the wandering chapter in the, the story, many of you know, we're on a journey together reading through the Bible uh, or a selection of the Bible really is what it's a reading plan. And as you read through this one, this will be one of, maybe one of the most frustrating ones for you to read. It was very frustrating for me to read because it was like God would say, do this, and the Israelites would totally disobey. And the Israelites would complain nonstop, complain, complain. It sort of reminds me of like if you ever go on a road trip with children. Like let's say you're going to Calgary. That's a trip that a lot of people have done. You go to Calgary. Where do your kids lose it? Like is it after Swift Current? Karen Port. <laughs> Oh, lots of people lose it in Carrenport. That's a and <laughs> on, on the highway. Yeah, just buckling them into their car seats. You're like, already this trip is killing him. So it's amazing. Like, it's like, and what do kids ask? What do, they say, what's the question they ask? Are we? Yes. Are you? Oh, you've had kids. Okay. Are we, are we there yet? How much further? You know. Now, if you're in a newer vehicle, you might have the. Can we watch another movie? Because that's the new question, right? Can we watch another one? You know, um, here's, here's the thing. Um, we don't have one of the newer ones, so our kids are still in the are we there yet stage. 
but uh, we do have a new enough car to have cup holders now, so we're really thrilled. Like, <laughs> the future is bright. I'm really a luxury. I'm just excited about cup holders. Um, I'll catch up to some of you guys with movies in your, in your TV someday. 20 years. 20 years I'll be there. When you're in hover cars, I will get a DVD player. <laughs> it's great. They won't even make DVD by the time I have one. Anyhow. So you're on your way, and your kids are, like, losing it, and you think, just get to Medicine Hat and that one McDonald's with the play place. That's what you're thinking, right? You know, just got to get to Medicine Hat and get to the play place, and then we can ah, relax, and they can get rid of their energy, and we'll go again. But Moses' trip is sort of like a trip to Calgary with a million children in the back seat. <laughs> you know, it's funny that when I was a kid when I was in, like, go to church, they would always call the, the nation of Israel, they called them the children of Israel. And it really, they act like children. And not in the good way. You know when people say you're very childlike? That's actually usually a compliment. It means, like, you, you have great joy and you haven't lost your wonder about life and your zest for living and, and, and you ride your bike and eat an apple and, you know, whatever. They just, that's childlike. But when people say you are very childish, that's not a compliment. And the children of Israel were a lot less childlike and a lot more childish because they were complaining and whining. Why did you take us out of Egypt? But Egypt was awesome. You know, it's just like irrationality that you, you, know, you deal with sometimes with children. And this is where they were at. And so you read it, and if you are a parent or if you just get annoyed with children, you will hate the reading we have this week probably because <laughs> it's complaining and it's arguing, and it's, why did you wreck our lives? We were, we were better when we were slaves. Whine, whine, complain. Numbers 20, there's no water. There's no water. And they, people gathered in opposition to Moses and Aaron. They quarreled with Moses and said, if we had died when our brothers fell dead before the Lord, if only we had died then. Why did you bring the Lord's community into this wilderness that we and our livestock should die here? Why did you, oh my goodness, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to this terrible place? It has no grain. It's a desert, right? It has no grain or figs, grapevines or pomegranates, and there's no water to drink. At this point, you don't even want to give them a juice box because it's so annoying. <laughs> Moses and Aaron went from the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting, and they fell face down, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. And the Lord said to Moses, Take the staff, and you and your brother Aaron gather the assembly together. Speak to that rock before their eyes, and it will pour out its water. You will bring water out of the rock for the community so they and their livestock can drink. Now, you should pause here. One of the things I find challenging when, I when I've been reading this part of the Bible, and it's personally challenging to me, is that sometimes when God um, is merciful, I don't agree. And sometimes when God brings judgment, I don't agree. And there's one of two things that you can do with that. So I'm just telling you, I've read it, so you're maybe going to read it, or maybe you've read it too, and you're struggling with some of those same things. When you come to that, you're going to do one of two things. You're going to say, well, surely 
my way of thinking is higher than God's way of thinking. And so you're going to judge God and you're going to say, well, it just seems like God's uncaring here or, or he's too permissive here. Or you're going to do the other way around and you're going to realize that, hey, some of my thinking is out of alignment with God's. That's what I've been experiencing this week. I've, got, I've read some stuff and I'm like, that troubles me. That bothers me. And it probably tells me something about where I'm at. And that I don't see things as God sees them. Now, some of it, you can't, you know, you weren't on the ground. You didn't live then. You didn't see it, you know. So it's a lot of it's perspective. You weren't like an eyewitness to the event. But realize that God's ways are higher than ours, our ways. And he is going to be right. And so I, in this case, in this story we're reading here, God is more merciful than Moses. God is more merciful than Moses. He, these people are whining and complaining. What did they deserve in, if they were doing this to me as a leader, I wouldn't be naturally merciful. But God is. He says, speak to the rock before their eyes, and it's going to pour out water. I'm going to provide again, like I always do. You'll bring water out of the rock for the community so that they and their livestock can drink. There's no retribution. There's no judgment. There's no, like, like... The fact that they're defying God and defying Moses, which is abhorrent, considering all that God has done for them, God is still merciful. But this is one of the stories where Moses is not in alignment with God. In fact, it's the one on the poster. It's the significant point. It's called wandering, but it's not just about the Israelites wandering. It's the fact that in this story, Moses begins to wander a little bit wander away from being aligned with God. And he's been wonderfully aligned with God so many times throughout this story, but here he gets out of alignment. So Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence. He took his, his rod just as he commanded him. Okay, He went from the Lord's presence. Now he's going to speak to the rock, right? That's what God told him to do. He and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock, and Moses said to them, Listen, you rebels! Must we bring you water out of this rock? Who's he saying is going to bring out the water out of the rock? We, Aaron and I. Must we bring you water out of this rock? Then Moses raised his arm and he struck the rock twice with his staff. And water gushed out in the community and their livestock drank. I read this week about a guy, he has a, he lost his job, at, and he's in Texas, and he lost his job, and then he opened his, a new business as an entrepreneur. And what his business is, is he has rooms, and in the rooms, there's stuff. He gets it from, like, you know, Salvation Army and Goodwill stores, but it's stuff in rooms, and then he'll rent those rooms to people for, like, $25 and for five minutes or $50 for 15 minutes, and he'll give them a choice of what they want to use, a crowbar, a sledgehammer, Etc. And what do they pay for? To go into the room and smash all the stuff. For therapy. Well, here's Moses doing something very similar for therapy. He's striking the rock. He was just told to speak to the rock. There was another instance where he was to hit the rock. God explicitly told him what to do in each situation. But in this case, he's 
He's up there, and he's like, he's lost it with the people. He's so angry. God wants to show them mercy. Man, this happens again and again in the Bible. Remember Jonah? He didn't want the Ninevites to turn. He didn't want them to experience the mercy of God. He had had it, and he was frustrated, and he was out of alignment with God. God, when he judges, is right. God, when he shows mercy, is right. And we might not feel that in the moment. Sometimes when he judges, we'll say, hey, no, no. It's too harsh. Or when he shows mercy, well, hey, hey, why are you letting these people get away with this? But it's always right to be aligned with God. And it tells us something about ourselves when we're out of alignment. And so when Moses is striking the rock and saying, we're going to bring you water, you rebels. God knows exactly where he's at. And knows that Moses, in this case, is not trusting God. And then that's exactly what he says to him. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you, do not, you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites. It's really something when God is saying, I'm going to cause a miracle to happen so the Israelites will know I provide for them, and then you go and take credit for that. That's a dangerous thing. That's an evil thing. You know what? When we look back at the history of our church, I, I often tell the history of our church, whether it's in membership class or whether I'm sharing anecdotes in our church. But I, it hit me this week as I was reading this. I thought, i got to be careful. Because a lot of times I just go back and I tell names of leaders and generations that rallied around them. And they're great stories about, you know, God, uh, you know, helping us to shift and move through all the generations. We're almost 100 years long as a church. And God has blessed us through all these years in different ways. But... I reminded myself this week, I said, when I tell the stories, i got to remember to tell people, it wasn't this leader and this generation, even though they follow, it, they aligned themselves with God who did the work. And then, even more crucial, if God is doing something in our day, I need to make sure that I don't say, look at what we did, team, and forget to say, look at what God did, team. So God rebukes Moses for taking the glory away from him, for, lose, for getting out of step with God. Because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I give them. So Moses never sees the land of, no, he sees the land of promise from the top of a mountain, but he never gets to enter into it. Now, the bigger story, that's the story of leadership, but the story of the followers is very similar because with, with uh, the followers of Jesus, they also uh, had a moment which disqualified them. So they've been led out of Egypt. They've been whining all the way. They get to Kadesh Barnea. If you've got your little story, the, the, the book, the story, you'll see there's a map in the front, and it's actually on there. You can see where Kadesh Barnea is. So it's sort of north of the Red Sea, and it's getting really close to the land of Canaan. It would take them very little time, just a couple days, to actually get there. So they're right there. They're basically on the doorstep. And they choose 12 guys. God actually says, choose one spy or one leader to be a spy from every tribe, all 12, and to go into the land to spy out the land to see what it's like. And they're like, God said this would be an amazing, lush land flowing with milk and honey. They go in and they find out it's true. 
It's true. It's true. I was looking at pictures this week. I forgot to get to our PowerPoint guys this morning, so I'm sad about this. I don't know if, if you find something, just throw it up there, guys, or whatever. But I found pictures this week. Oh, yeah, that's a good one. Okay, good job. Wow, these guys are amazing. Um, can you imagine walking into Superstore? Should I put a loony in the cart or should I just get a basket today? And then you see this there. And you're like, oh, I'm so glad I brought my friend with me and those two poles. And then you set it up and you go up to the till. And they're like, I've heard if I spend $250 here, I get a free gift. <laughs> Boom. I think that'll do it. One item purchase. And you get your $250. Anyhow, the story goes in the, in, the, in the story of the spying of the land of Canaan that they bring back a cluster of grapes so big. And by the way, this is grape, grapes from Palestine. That's what this picture is. I saw that one on the internet. I'm glad you chose that one, Tim. These are grapes from Palestine. It, takes two, it took two men to carry the cluster of grapes they brought back to the Israelites. So something like this is what they brought back. So people are like, wow, it's not like the desert, is it? No, no, it's not like the desert at all. It is a lush, amazing land. God has provided an amazing place for us to live. But there's a problem. It's full of big warriors, giants compared to us. We're like grasshoppers in their sight. I mean, they go to the greatest lengths to show how big the obstacles are and how small they are in comparison, and they've forgotten something in the equation, and that is how big God is. And it's only two of the 12 that step forward and say, whoa, 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 whoa. You are magnifying the problem and minimizing God. Again, do you trust me? Do you trust God? It's the, it's the most important question in this story. It's, do you trust God? And so they get to this point. They get to this point of, of, um, of, of scare, being scared and, and not knowing what to do. By the way, I want to say something. Do you know how long it took them to explore the land? 40 days. Remember I said it took less than 40 days for them to forget God and Moses at Mount Sinai? Now they're camped right on the land of promise, just right on the borders, and it takes them only 40 days. So the spies who go in, how, they select, God said, pick your best. Pick your best. Pick your best leaders. Send 12 of them in. 10 of them, 40 days later, come back, and they forgot who it is that sent them. They forgot who it is that said that they should be chosen. They forgot what they're called to do. This happens. People say, I'm going to serve God. I know what my purpose is for God. I know what my role is here. I'm here as a leader representing my tribe, whatever tribe that is, to go in to the land that God has said will be ours. Forty days later, they come back, and they've got a pros and cons sheets. And they go, pros, big grapes, cons, big warriors. And they say, no. Like, what happened to their faith? What happened to their trust in God that evaporated in, in the matter of 40 days? And it's Joshua and Caleb who step up and they say, if the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and will give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not be afraid of the people of the land because we will devour them. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. But the people of Israel, the children of Israel, 
they don't listen. And the next verse says, the whole assembly talked about stoning them. They basically, they, they looked at Moses and Aaron. Now, I've told you this story, and I've painted this picture before, but I think it's very significant what happens in this moment. When Israel is about to make the biggest mistake they can make, there's four leaders, and two leaders do one thing, and two leaders do the other thing. Moses and Aaron, they just fall on their faces before God. And Joshua and Caleb start speaking to the people. That's a great uh, picture of a team in action, right? We're going up to do a set-free retreat here in, in Eston this week. Uh, we're taking some people to intercede before God, to fall on their faces before God for the lives and the destinies of, I don't know, I think there's going to be about 100 young adults there. So half the team is going to fall on their face before God, and then the other half the team is going to get up and speak to them. That's a pretty good example of what you should do as a team, Right? I'm, I'm really encouraged in this church. There's been a, a, a growing swell of prayer in this church that's so encouraged me. I have so many times where I'm walking around in, in these buildings or I'm coming up to speak or something and someone will stop me and say, hey, by the way, you're covered today. The prayer artillery has already been demolishing the enemy defenses today. Just get up there and plant the flag, Steve. Just get up there and plant the flag. So this team, I mean, is four versus a million. The odds aren't very good, but these two, they begin to cry out to God. And you know what? It doesn't say what they prayed, but you look at what Moses prayed again and again when he, or how he spoke to God. Whenever God was going to roll out judgment, Moses would speak to him and say, show mercy. And he would never do it based on the goodness of the people because that was never a factor. They were always guilty. They always deserved judgment. You read the story. You will never go, man, those people were kind of good. They were not. They're rotters. But so is all humanity. We've all gone our own way. We've all followed the pattern of Adam and Eve, going our own way and rejecting God. And so Moses would always say to God, he wouldn't say, hey, God, let it slide. These guys are sort of good. He'd say, no. They deserve your judgment. But then he would appeal to God's name. He'd say, but for your reputation, God, so that you receive praise in the earth, so that people of Egypt who hear someday that you took them out into the desert and then they all died, won't slander your name. Moses is jealous for the name of God. And he's saying, I don't want, I don't want anything to slander your name. So God, show mercy. So that you look good in the nations. Very interesting. I've often wondered about that. What are we supposed to do when you see evil in the world? How are you supposed to pray? This is helpful around election time because elections can make you mad. Right? I don't know if you've experienced it. I got mad a few times just reading news articles. I said, no, I'm mad. Okay, no more, no more, no more. I don't want to read anymore. I just don't want to be mad. So what do you pray? Lord, judge the nation. Judge these leaders. Judge whoever you think should be judged. Or have mercy. Which should you be praying? And uh, it seems like Moses, in every case, he would call out to the Lord for mercy. And I think that's the the model for us. Now, it's up to the Lord to decide. Because he knows in his timing when that judgment should arrive. And he knows... Also, when he's withholding judgment. You know, I'll just throw this one out as a tidbit. I want to talk about this topic all day, but I'll just stop on this one and say this tidbit. When God spoke to Abraham, 
he told him that his descendants would, be, would go 400 years into another land. So this is going back to the second, the second little picture here. He told him, your descendants, which will become a nation, they're going to go into another land. And they do. That's where they do become a nation. In Egypt, the land of Goshen. That's where they multiply rapidly, have big families and lots of people, and then they become this big nation. And he says, they're going to be there 400 years. Abraham is told how long it's going to last. It's going to be 400 years. And then he gives a very strange reason why it has to be 400 years. He says, because the sins, because it's going to take 400 years for the sins of the Amorites to add up. What? Who are the Amorites? What's going on? Well, the Amorites are uh, idol worshipers, sacrificing their children, uh, involved in cultish prostitution, all sorts of evil is happening in the Amorites. And God is saying, at the end of 400 years, the judgment's coming for the Amorites. So the timing of all these pieces that are moving on the chessboard in God's bigger story, it's, it's enormous. He says, I'm actually not rolling out judgment on them for 400 years. This wicked culture. So some days, I've heard people say that about Canada, and say, well, man, God's got to judge Canada at some point because of some of the stuff we're doing. And I think, you know what? He might be tallying a 400-year tally, and then he might judge us. God's timeline is enormous. He's thinking in generations. He's thinking in centuries and millenniums and, and more than that. So sometimes we think, oh, man, this is, this is, someone did this evil this week. I don't know why God's let them live to the end of the week. Why did Charles Manson get to live in prison? Why wasn't, didn't God strike him dead? Sorry, you have to be a certain age to know who Charles Manson is. The Bible says that God is slow to anger. When you read the passage this week, you might question that. But I want you to understand this. this, For me, this was helpful for me. He's slow to anger, but when his judgment comes, it comes swiftly. So imagine 400 years where he doesn't judge the Amorites. 400 years. All the wickedness that happens in 400 years in a truly wicked culture. But when the Israelites get to the land of Canaan, and we'll learn a bit more about that next week when Dave Moore takes us in. But when the Israelites get to the land of Canaan, the judgment time, all of God's chess pieces have come to the moment where it's time. The God who's slow to anger and who let them sin and sin and sin and do all sorts of wicked practices for 400 years brings judgment through the Israelites. So some of those go, whoa, these poor Amorites, why those poor innocent people that were... No, 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 no. Don't be fooled. Don't be fooled. None of us is innocent, really. Like, all of us deserve the judgment of God. I don't do this much with my kids, but I I think it could be something you could do with your kids. Just whenever they complain on a road trip, say, stop the car and say, okay, what do you deserve? You should prime them for this. The answer is death. Okay? (laughs) You might not like this kind of parenting. I haven't actually used it, but I dream about these things someday. Anyhow, what do you deserve? Death. That's right. And what did you get? Trip to Calgary. Okay, let's go again, right? Anyhow. 
Like, I've thought about this so many times. What does God owe me? He has loaned me some life. He has loaned me 47 years so far. Now, I say loan because if I said he gave it to me, then I'd sort of seem like, well, that's mine. He can't take it away. But if God loans you life and at some point calls on the lease and it's over, does he owe you something? If God loans you life and then the time of that life ends, so I'm just putting, I'll use me as an example. I'm 47. If I die tonight, did God do me wrong? No. Are we even? No. Do I owe him? Yes. He's get, everything he's given me is a gift. I mean, he's given me life and then he gave me his son. I am an heir of eternal life. I've got forever. I, I love how my parents have always talked about death. So casually, so confidently. You know, just the other day, we're just quipping, you know, Philippians back and forth. To live is Christ, to die is gain. I'm doing this with my mom. She's 84. She's at my house. She's like, yeah, that's wonderful, isn't it? I thought, I love that my parents have always been just like, this life is awesome. They love life. But the life to come with Jesus is way more awesome. It's way more awesome. If I die today... Praise be to God that he gave me 47 years. I want to have grandkids. I want to live long like my, most of my ones before me. But I don't, God doesn't owe me that, right? I, I'm pretty peaceful about this. You know, I've got life insurance. I told my wife, marry for money the next time. <laughs> I'm good. I've got eternity. I, I'm kidding about that in case... Uh, I'm sorry, I, I hate that I always have to make sure that's clear, but <laughs> we married for love the first time, and that was really fun. It's not as lucrative as you'd think, <laughs> but it's been fun. This is how God responds to the Israelites who refuse to go into the Israelites, in, into, into Canaan. It says, the whole assembly talked about stoning them. And then the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the Israelites. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will these people treat me with contempt? How long will they refuse to believe in me in spite of all the signs I've performed among them? Hmm. How do people treat God with contempt? I think one of the simplest ways is spelled out in Romans chapter 1. We don't thank him or glorify him. That's just one of the simplest ways. It's just natural. God, God lends you life, and you don't say thank you. Not only you don't say thank you, you don't recognize who he is in your life. You don't recognize, you look at, you know, Romans 1 says creation testifies about who he is. We can look around and go, whoa, 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 whoa. This is not here by accident. I'm not here by accident. And we, you know, we thank him. That's the beginning. I mean, there's so many other ways you can treat God with contempt. But that one's, that one's probably the basis. If you don't thank God, if you don't show gratitude towards God, if you don't put your trust in God, 
That's contempt for who he is. And for how he's made you and for what he's given you. And so the, the Israelites don't get to go in. That generation doesn't go into the land of promise. It's like they get redirected. It's like the, the GPS, you know, if you miss a turn, the GPS sends you around the long way, and it's a long, long way. This is what happens. They go 40 years back into the wilderness. They go back down by the Red Sea. And that whole generation that refused to receive the land that God had promised them lives the rest of their lives in the desert. And God still provides for them and God still guides them. But it's the next generation who gets to go in. And when they get back to the same thing 40 years later, when they get back to the same moment of choice 40 years later, they've got an old, uh, you know, they've got Caleb and Joshua, old leaders, the only ones from the previous generation still alive. And then they've got all these younger leaders. When they get there, you know what? You know what? I found this very funny and interesting. Joshua doesn't send 12 spies in the second time. He sends two. I bet they were handpicked. Not because they were well esteemed in their tribe, but because they trusted God. He sends two. And they come back and they say, hey man, there's even more people in this land now. And they're even bigger and more numerous. And boy, Jericho's a big city. Let's go take it. Let's receive what God has promised us. Let's trust God this time, unlike the generation that went before us that refused to trust him and refused to receive what he had for them. And you know what? Moses, even though he doesn't get into the land, he does this incredible and this incredible uh, challenge to them at the end. And that's what I want to leave you with today. Moses' challenge to the Israelites at the very end. He just lays it down as a choice. In Deuteronomy 30, 15, he says this. This is his final call for Israel to trust God. He says, see, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. For I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, and to keep his commands, decrees, and laws, and then you will live and increase, and the Lord will bless you in the land you're entering to possess. But if your heart turns away and you're not obedient... And if you're drawn away to bow down to other gods and worship them, I declare to you this day that you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live long in the land you're crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. So this day I call the heavens and earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God Listen to his voice and hold fast to him. For the Lord is your life, or as Jesus would say, the bread of life, the all satisfaction of life. The Lord is your life, and he will give you many years in the land he swore to give your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Would you stand with me this morning? As Moses said, there's so many things that God wants to, he lays out before us that he wants to bring into our lives. He listed life, prosperity, increase, blessing, not just for us. I mean, the car analogy of having kids in the backseat, this really applies. How you trust God is a model and example for how your kids will see how to trust God. 
There was a whole generation who only had two men they could look to. Just Joshua and Caleb of a whole generation, only two faithful guys who trusted God. And everyone else, everyone's mom, everyone's dad, everyone's uncle, everyone's aunt, full of fear, refusing to trust, refusing to enter into the land of promise. I think God's wanting more than just two from every generation. I think he wants scads and scads of people in every generation to say, God, I trust you. I see the choice before me. I understand on one hand there's life and prosperity, on the other hand there's death and destruction, and I'm going to trust you to lead me into life. That's what I want to, I want to bring us to today. You know what? We're going to pray our prayer of commitment. We pray this pretty much every Sunday here. It's a weekly commitment that you could make every single week. It's also, it could be the beginning of your walk with God. It could be beginning of you giving your life over to him, recognizing that, man, you don't deserve what he gives you, but he still is offering it. He's offering to lead and guide you. He's offering to provide for you. He's offering to be uh, the one who forgives your sin and makes you right so that you, with God so that you can have relationship with him. And I'd encourage you to choose that to choose life, like Moses said, and not choose death and destruction. Let's, let's pray this prayer of commitment together. I'll, I'll say it and you can repeat after me. Dear Father, thank you that you love me and that you sent Jesus to die on the cross for my sin. I put my trust in Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Help me live a life that honors you by the power of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, Lord, we, we recognize in this day where we're all focused on who, which human leaders will lead us, we want to recognize that you are the leader we're following. Yeah, you're the leader we're following. You're the one we have the hope in. Yeah, we vote. We're citizens of Canada. We, we, we want to play well as good neighbors and participate in the process. But we look to you. We look to you. You're the leader that we want to emulate, we want to be like. You're the leader that we trust in. We've seen uh, through the scripture who you are, and we see your character, and we, Lord, we want, to, we want to trust. We want to put our trust in you and not in anyone else. And so, Lord, bring us back again. When our, our thoughts stray, when our minds stray, when fear grips us, with anger grips us, as it can in a season like this, Lord, I pray you bring us back to simple trust in you. Trust in you. You will guide you will provide. You're the best leader we can have. We love you, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Let's worship with one more song and then uh, we'll be dismissed.